0: That text that Paul was speaking about makes a lot of sense for the world just before the flood. That condemnation about no one seeks after God. No, not one. Paul was just talking about general humanity. He wasn't referring to some special age, but he was talking about all people That was the significance of what he was talking about, whether it was the Jews or the Gentiles in chapter one, or the Jews in chapter two. Chapter three of Romans says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned that no one seeks after God. The Bible is not nearly as optimistic about our capabilities as we seem to be. We often profess our own goodness our own capabilities relying on ourselves is usually the pride of people i know that's at least my pride is to be able to do things on my own and not seek the help of others and we might think that because well i'm created in the image of god aren't didn't god create the world good how is it now that when we look to ourselves That why does the Bible seem to speak so much more negatively about us? Well, that's because the fall. It's because of what happened after Adam and Eve fell, radically changed human nature. And what we see as we're going through Genesis, after the fall, is seeing the state of decay. Seeing the downward spiral of humanity, which gets to our text this morning. Let's read from Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out. Man, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds from of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made man or made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the Lord's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And the Lord saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. This is the reading of God's holy an inerrant word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We need to have a proper perspective. It's a text that I keep appealing to and I keep going back again and again to. In Mark chapter three, might be Mark chapter 2, when Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, to himself. One thing that's surprising about that is the fact that Jesus, the Holy Son of God, when he comes into a sinful world, would call sinners to be close to him. That he would invite sinners to be the ones who follow him, and not just any sinners, but the worst of sinners. And there's two ways that we can think of this when we see an event like that happen we might think oh well those sinners are just not as bad as we thought maybe even though they have a bad job like extortionist they're basically extortionist maybe really they're good people they're basically good people on the inside and jesus sees that glimmer of goodness and he calls him to himself Or, maybe what Jesus said is true, which that should be your clue there. That Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. For a doctor heals the sick, not the well. If you put yourself in the category of not sick, you have just... Put yourself out of the category of the kinds of people Jesus has come to save. That's what the Pharisees had done. They thought they were righteous. They thought by their meticulous following of the law that they wrote, that they were righteous. But what's the Bible's assessment of our condition. If Jesus is the the physician, what's the diagnosis that he gives us? Because if we have a common cold, we might sit at home until we get better. If we have cancer, we're going to be really serious about getting the cure, aren't we? And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that our condition is actually even worse than having cancer. For it tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. This is not an optimistic view of humanity. It's actually something extremely offensive to our sensibilities. But I can tell you it with a smile on my face. Not because I'm just a glutton for punishment, or I love being a curmudgeon, but because when we look at our sinfulness and see it for what it is, we get to glory in the graciousness of God, His kindness, His goodness, and that's what's always on display, and that's what we're going to see in our text, even here, just before the flood, in the state of decay. And as we're going to move through this diagnosis, we're going to see that the state of decay starts with a descent into decay. Then we're going to explore the depth of that decay from that fall from original righteousness that Adam and Eve had. And then we'll look at the deliverance. The descent, the depth, and the deliverance. So let's first look at the descent. You know, there's a lot of strange things in this text, and I think this is, just seems to be a reoccurring theme when you're reading the Bible. And I want to point out to you that as we seek to answer these questions, we're seeking to answer questions like, who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? We have to be careful and proceed with caution. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that when Paul left Timothy in Macedonia to be a pastor of those people, he told them that to remain in Ephesus so that, that, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or teachings, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship. ...from God that is by faith. And Paul says his aim in verse, the very next sentence. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart... ...and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these... ...these certain doctrines... ...have wandered away into vain discussions desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Did you hear the warning? We have to be careful of false teachers, yes. But what's a way that we can identify false teachers? Well, Paul tells us one of the things that they do, or at least the problem in the particular area in Ephesus was that they focused their attention on myths and endless genealogies. Promoting speculations rather than stewardship from God, which is our faith. Wandering into vain discussions, not basically knowing what the scripture teaches, and they're making confident assertions about things they don't know. Let me tell you some things that are speculations, things that honestly, even after a lot of study this week, I'm still not certain of. Verses 1 through 4 really des- describes the descent. We've seen that in Genesis three fifteen that God had set up two humanities, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. We see the line of Satan in Cain being a murderer, and we see his offspring were filled with violence. And then we have a shift of perspective following the line of Seth. And the line of Seth is not people born by nature, but the thing that distinguishes the line of Seth in Genesis chapter 5 is we see a lineage of the faithful, those who have faith like their father. And we see the line of the faithful throughout history. And as we looked last week, the things that distinguish him are things like Enoch in verse 22 of chapter 5, that he walked with God, which is exactly what we see of Noah. It starts off saying that when the man began to multiply on earth and children were born, that verse 2 of chapter 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man Were attractive. The first question that we have when looking at the descent is who are the sons of God? And what about them when they have this relationship produces these men of renown? Let me tell you what fits the context the best and what seems to be what I think it is. Is that the sons of God are those that in Genesis chapter 4 verse 26 of the line of Seth when the people at that time began to call upon the name of the Lord and if you remember this same phrase to call upon the name of the Lord is used in Isaiah 44 verse 5 of people who identify themselves as belonging to God that they have it as it were God's name written on their hands inscribed on their persons it's their surname and when we look at the descent here, the explanation that I think fits best the context of Genesis is that the sons of God is the line of Seth. They married the daughters of man, the line of Cain. And what produced the offspring of this ended up being a common, repeated theme throughout Scripture, which is when you have a mixed relationship. The marriage between unbeliever and believer is the believer's faith who gets corrupted nine times out of ten. This is a common theme throughout Scripture. And it's carried on over into the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39 tells us that a wife is bound to her, her husband as long as he lives... But if her husband dies, she's free to marry whoever she wishes. But then Paul adds one caveat. Only in the Lord. And if you look at Israel's history, you see this time and time again. That what happens to the people of God is they follow the eyes of their heart not the eyes of faith. This was a constant temptation that Satan used over and over in history of marriages with unbelievers, whether it was after the Exodus, Balaam seeking to corrupt the people of God in that way, or in Ezra's time, when there's intermixed marriages between believer and unbeliever. This is something that we like to call missionary dating where you're really like someone, and they have so many good characteristics, there's just one thing that they're missing. They don't love Jesus. But you love them. And what ends up happening is you have to end up choosing between these loves. Do you love this person? Or do you love God and His Word? And we have to make the choice between loving our sin or loving God. You know what? There are people who have this, and we see this all the time, of people who have sin in their life that they're blind to and don't see how it's inconsistent with their calling. The problem with missionary dating is I think it would be a good idea if we are the missionaries. I like to go into places where I'm surrounded by unbelievers, where I can be a light in a dark place. The problem is, we need to ask ourselves in these relationships, who's the real missionary? Are we the missionaries going into a dark place? Or are they the missionary for their own way of life? appealing our sense via our emotional connections to follow them rather than the Lord. This is one of the biggest temptations. I think we've all seen, if you've lived long enough, you see godly young men, godly young women who marry poorly. And by that I mean not just good people, but non-believers. And we watch their faith fade over time. We need to beware of this danger. But if you find yourself in that relationship, the same chapter that says that you're free to marry only in the Lord, tells us to stay with our unbelieving spouse. That we might be a light to them. But we have to guard our hearts. So that's one potential of this, the sons of God. But the sons of God, that phrase, as it's used other places in scripture, it's a weird phrase. It usually refers to angels. And this is where you get the odd or the seemingly odd idea to me of angels having children with the daughters of men being humanity. And you have this hybrid mighty men of old. Let me tell you why I don't think that's the case. Jesus himself tells us that angels are neither given into marriage and that they're not married. In other words, God created marriage for reproduction, and angels don't seem, he's never designed them for the function of marriage. They don't seem to have that capacity. But besides that, Genesis 1 already told us a very particular principle. ...that he made every species to reproduce after its own kind. Angels have spiritual bodies. Weird things happen in Scripture. Demon possession happens in Scripture. But if this is the only place in Scripture that seems to indicate that angels... ...are producing offspring with human beings, it doesn't seem to fit with the rest of Scripture... And as I looked at different church fathers throughout the centuries, I found it's been split pretty 50-50 here. Especially because there is a New Testament text, 2 Peter 2 verse 4 and 5, and Jude verse 6, that could lean to this being angels. So I think the best thing to say is honestly I don't know exactly. And there are things in Scripture that we don't know for certain. An example of that is the Nephilim. You know, the Nephilim are said in verse 4 to be the mighty men of old, men of renown, men of name, literally. The Nephilim were famous. So famous, in fact, that when Moses appeals to them, the only place that the word Nephilim occurs, which Nephilim means fallen ones, The only place it occurs again is in Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, where the Israelites, the 12 spies, go into the promised land to investigate it. And they come back saying, there are giants in the land. We cannot go in there. We're going to all die. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're like the Nephilim of old. Why does he say that? Well because Moses' audience were familiar with what a Nephilim was and how famous they were. And he didn't need to explain it. Four thousand years later, we might need an explanation for a word that only occurs twice in the Bible. But don't think I'm trying to remove the supernatural element from the scripture. Because the thing that distinguished the Nephilim, every time that they're spoken of, they're always spoken of in that context of giants. People in this time lived long lives and seemed certain people were giants in the land. And they don't all die out in the flood. We see giants afterwards, and they're always appealed to as the sons of Anak. In Numbers chapter 13, that text I referred to, says that there's a line, descendants of Anak, that they have come from. Just to give you a small sampling of this, remember Goliath? Goliath, that that, uh, David encountered, he was, usually when you're reading the ESV, the measurements are in cubits, which I don't know what that means, I'm not sure why they did that, so I apologize on their behalf. But Goliath was nine feet tall, nine inches. David later on, 2 Samuel, so that was 1 Samuel 17, 2 Samuel 21, we see that there were other giants which David's men killed. And they were, that was part of the renown, part of the amazing thing was fighting people who are giants, way bigger than you. The very first person that Moses, when he's entering into the land of Canaan to begin the conquest, he kills Og, king of Bashan. And in Deuteronomy 3, verse 11, we're told that his bed was a 13-foot-long bed. Now, if you have a 13-foot-long bed, I know that a king size bed is 6 feet for 6 feet people. Most likely, that means that he was 13 feet. And maybe he was just as tall as Goliath, nine feet. And once again, the supernatural element of this, we know that there's a disease called giantism. And while it negatively affects people today, and we don't see people this tall, we do still see big people. It's a rarity, but we do see big people. This is what we see in Scripture. But when we're looking at this, there's lots of different unanswered questions like this, which, if you come to Fellowship Group, we can explore those questions in more depth. That's not the point right now. The point right now is to say that this descent and decay, usually this appeal to angels, is an appeal to some external factor that explains the condition of everyone except Noah being an unbeliever. And this is the problem. Whenever we use to explain the descent of our sinfulness to merely external factors, we are doing a disservice to what the Scripture says about our nature. Sin is not a problem that's out there. Sin is a problem, the root of which is in here, in our hearts. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14 and 22, talking to Pharisees who are trying to clean up after they interact with unclean people, Jesus responds to say nothing, that, nothing outside a person that go going into him can defile him but things that come out of a person are what defile him. In explaining to his disciples, he says, Do you not see, verse 18 of Mark chapter 7, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters into his stomach, not into his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within And they defile a person. When we're talking about sin and who we are as sinners, what we're talking about is not that we become sin or that we become sinners at some point, but that our sin is an expression of our heart, an expression of our own desires. So how deep does this go? What is the depth of depravity which man has fallen into? We're told in verse 5 the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is probably the best summary verse that we can go to to explain what we mean. ...as reformed people talk about the doctrine of total depravity. How deep, once people sin, how deep does it go? We're told before the flood... ...that it goes to every intention of his heart. Verse 11. That when God looks at the world... ...you know, God before, in Genesis chapter 1, looked at the world... ...that he had made, and behold, he saw that everything was very good. But what does he look at now? What God sees now is that the earth was corrupt in his sight. The earth was filled with violence. The Lord saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Every person... And we're going to see that Noah is the exception. But God is talking about a corruption that applies to every single person at this moment in history on earth. And you know, as we read about the flood and we see different things about it, we might think that this is a unique point in history. But you know, right after the flood, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21... God says that he'll never again curse the ground because of man, the flood that is, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You see, once God judged the world with a flood, he wiped out, cleansing the earth of the wickedness that dwelled within it. He left Noah, and he left his family. You know what that means? Still, the problem was not dealt with. You see, the problem of sin is a pollution in the human will, the human mind, the human heart that does not go away by any amount of washing. This is not a cold cold. This is a cancer. And this is at the very root of humanity. This is why Paul in Romans chapter 3... ...quoting the Psalms and actually many different Psalms... ...when God's people are even speaking about themselves and their own proclivities... ...that we see that no one does good, no not one. No one even seeks after God. This is our natural condition. Notice here what we're not saying. We're not saying that people are no longer people. After the fall, it's not going to the extreme of complete irrationality as if they have the complete inability to think, to talk, in in such a way that man ceases to be man. Rather, what we see is God, that what man does now after the fall, is uses all of their capabilities to serve themselves. And what's worse about as we descend into sin, there is an irrational element. But the irrational element is not that man has lost function as a man. Instead, we see man who's intelligent and crafty and shrewd using all his powers to do what is evil in God's sight. I read on Ligonier from a Ligonier article that sin is not, when we're talking about total depravity here, we're not talking about the relative degrees of goodness and badness in every action that a man takes And then trying to do some calculus of the sum total of all of his actions to see whether it leans in the balance of good or evil. What we're talking about here is if sin was a color and that color was blue to identify the infection, we would be entirely blue like the blue men group, except inside and out. And if that dye penetrated our minds we'd figure out that every aspect of us has, at the root of it, the corruption of sin. How far has we fallen? What's the depth? What about our desires? Who in this room can say they desire God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and desire to do what's pleasing to Him? Or do we find ourselves desiring what God has labeled in his word as evil? What about our minds, our thinking? We see that people think rationally. They use their judgment, but they use their judgment to justify their sin instead of using, going through the process of, wait, if God is God and I am not, then I need to submit to him. Our emotions, how many of our emotions we get ticked off when we see people, we're trying to get to church on time and someone's going the speed limit in front of us. And our emotions are enraged. Is that justified, really? What we see is that at the root of us, inside and out, all of it is stained with sin. Sin stains even our best of works. Even our best thoughts, even our best actions are stained with bad intentions, thoughtlessness, neglect, and self-serving attitude. And while God and his mercy does not allow us to be as bad as we could be, we can say for certain, no one is good. No, not one. And by God's perfect standard, if you look at the Ten Commandments to see whether you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. When you see that you do the opposite of all those things in thought, word, and deed, the Bible labels that as hatred. When we hate our neighbor, we hate them, right? If we steal from our neighbor or desire what they have, we're not loving them with our thoughts, we're hating them. That's the Bible's judgment on our sins. And what God sees when he looks at our hearts, God is so sovereign that he sees everything. Nothing gets out of his sight. He sees even the intentions of our thoughts. And by his standard, he judges them as only evil continually. This is the most offensive thing you can say to any sinner. What happens when we ask someone or we point out someone's sin? Isn't that the very first inclination of our hearts, even in our own lives, that we go to justify ourselves? See, when we understand total depravity, what it should do for us is humble us. Christians should be a humble people knowing that any goodness within ourselves is the result of God's grace in our lives. We can't be like the Pharisees and try to distance ourselves from the sinful world and use our disgust of sin to avoid seeking after the lost. No, what we need to see is that there's sin, that there's an answer to it in Jesus Christ. We've seen the descent. We've seen the decay. Let's look at the deliverance. You know, we see the deliverance when we look at Noah. Noah, we're told, is a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Ezekiel 14, verse 14, and verse 20 point out that when, in Ezekiel's day, when he's pointing out the three most righteous men, he names Noah, Daniel, In Job, speaking about Israel, that even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would be, they would deliver their own lives by their righteousness, but they would not, they would not save the world. You see this sinfulness, this depravity outlives the flood because the problem is in our hearts, not out in the world. And lest you are taken off guard, verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found there grace in his eyes. And we know that this does not contradict all the other teachings of Scripture. And actually, we have an authoritative interpretation of this in Hebrews 11, verse 7. That by faith, Noah was saved. And we'll see that really Noah's faith next time. But I want to reiterate that Noah, in his faith, was a righteous man. He was truly blameless in his generation. That Noah, as we saw last week, he walked with God. Lest we think that this is some Old Testament focus on living a righteous life, listen to Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Did you notice that? God's grace has appeared. He's given us salvation. And what does he want it to do in our lives? To train us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives, godly lives in the present age. Verse 14 talks about Jesus that he gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The identifying quality of God's people in the sense of how we're made righteous in God's eyes, we see that Noah's not perfect. He sins right after the flood. He gets drunk with his family. But what we cannot miss is that in the midst of an ungodly people where he's the sole righteous man His faith was evidenced in good works. That this is what the Christian life of what we're called to be. We're called to be lights in an ungodly age. We're to be beacons to show God's redemptive grace in a sinner's life. We're not to be conformed to the ways and the thinking of this world, but we are to be transformed in the renewing of our minds. And when God looked at the world, this deliverance is only by faith. You know, there's two different types of deliverance. There's the deliverance of the flood, and there's the deliverance in the ark. The deliverance of the ark is Noah and all the people who are related to him in covenant, his family. But the world... Who lives in their sin and depravity, God, justice is what is at hand. He will blot out all humanity, all flesh. You see, the world had become full of violence and sexual immorality. And what we have in Scripture is a principle of retributive justice, that God gives sin exactly what it deserves. And what all sin deserves is death. And those who committed acts of violence, who rejoice like Lamech in chapter 4 in their murderings of other people, God's judgment on them is that they are wiped out. You see, when we look at our sin, it should lead to our humility. And in no way should we be called to minimize our sin. God saves us by his Son, not because we're sick and have a cold, not because our sins are little, but he saves us. He saves even the worst of sinners who come to him. What this does and what the Christian view as we read the scriptures and see our God, what we're called to profess is God's greatness and our lowness. What our sin does is like a black piece of velvet in a jewelry shop. Why do you put the black velvet behind a diamond and shine a light on it? It's the black backdrop that makes the diamond shine all the more. Hides the defects too, but let's ignore that part real quick. That doesn't fit this illustration. The point is, our sin is what provides the backdrop for God's redeeming grace. The jewel of our salvation is Jesus Christ and His righteousness. What we contribute to our salvation is not our goodness, not our greatness, or not even how smart we were in choosing Jesus. The only thing we contribute is our sin. If that doesn't humble us, nothing will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it shows us who you are and what you've done to save us. And Lord, may we not think or treat our sins lightly. For you not only promised judgment in that day with the flood, but you've promised judgment. That the judgment upon all humanity which has been delayed is coming. Judgment day upon all sinners is coming. And God will give every sin exactly what it deserves. Both in this life and that which is to come. And you may you train your people to live godly lives, not so that we can become boastful about our works, but so that we can boast in the power of our Savior to redeem us. Lord, we ask for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let us continue our worship by singing his praises. It's found in your bulletin.